Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two laws hang all the commandments and the prophets. Jesus Christ summarized the law of God by saying it is far more important to love God with all your heart and all of your being and to love your neighbor as yourself than anything else. For many years I've tried to tell people, quote, doctrine isn't where it's at, end quote. I've been misunderstood oftentimes by that statement because I don't mean that the truth, and after all the word doctrine merely means truth, is not important, or that we are not to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior Jesus Christ, or that we're not to understand as much about the Word of God as we possibly can, a workman that needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth, here and there a little, and line upon line, and all the other scriptures about prove all things and hold fast that which is good. But do we all understand that at the last moment of this world's history, there are going to be countless tens of thousands that will vastly outnumber the members of God's true church, who will never have understood one thing about the identity of Israel, who will never have understood one thing about tithing, will never have had revealed to their minds the history of how Sunday was foisted off upon an unsuspecting world, or to understand about the Sabbath. They will only understand a couple of basic things. I am a filthy, rotten human being, maybe a, a filthy murderer, or a homosexual, or a prostitute, or a robber, or whatever. And I'm on this earth, and there is a God. And he just split the heavens open. And that's his voice I'm hearing. And he's up there, and I'm down here. And I'm only this big, and I thought I was a big man. Only a very few fundamental things are going to be understood by people who see the heavens rendered asunder and see a great conquering Christ coming down on a white horse and who hear the thunder of seven trumpets and see all around them the plagues that are going to obliterate countless millions of human lives and who finally fall upon their knees and cry out for the rocks to cover them and to hide them. They're going to experience what we know of as abject repentance. And God is going to receive them. And as Christ said to the stiff-necked Jews, harlots, prostitutes, publicans are going to come into the kingdom of God before some of you religious people, and said, The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In the time that this day depicts, the great white throne judgment day, and we'll turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, there is going to be a harvest of human beings so fabulously greater than anything that has ever taken place in history, than any historical effort of the Church of God, that there is simply no comparison. Countless millions of human beings are going to be judged. Now, we are being judged today. The picture we see in the 19th chapter of, and in the 7th chapter of the book of Daniel, we read yesterday that the judgment was set, and 10,000 times were before him, and judgment went out like a powerful scream, and I saw until he came unto the Ancient of Days, and so on, is what many Protestants have perceived as being 
the great God on a throne and endless people out there coming before this great judgment seat and God with the gavel who said, you go to heaven and then you go to hell, and the picture that they portrayed for us from the time of our youth in the Protestant churches. And that is not what judgment is all about. Judgment is not a sentencing. Judgment is a lifelong process of appraising and assessing the degree of our repentance and conversion and walking with Jesus Christ in newness of life, a new creature begotten in each of us who is being formed just as you were formed in a womb. In the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, we see the great white throne judgment, beginning in verse 11. I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. That's metaphor. It's just talking about his glory, his greatness, his splendor. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. So they're not dead anymore. They are resurrected in the great vast second resurrection. And the books were opened. The Greek word is biblos. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. That's God's record. Is it literal? Is it literally a book? I don't know. I have no way of demonstrating it one way or another. Is it kept by angels? Is there actually a name there, like the Vietnam Monument in Washington, D.C., with the name of every young man who died in the Vietnam War etched deeply into that big monument, which I have seen? Another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the Biblos books according to their work not according to everything they did long before they died, but according to their works during a period of time that Isaiah 65 strongly implies is to last for 100 years. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell, and the Greek word is Hades, that merely means the grave, delivered up the dead which were in them. And a grave is not a grave unless it has a body in it, otherwise it's merely a hole in the ground. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Now, as Peter wrote, judgment must begin today upon the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? We are judged every single day. Once we receive God's Holy Spirit, we put our hand to the plow of the Christian life. We live a life that is to be a life of overcoming, of prayer, of medication. I should say meditation, of giving to our fellow brethren in the church and outside of the church, of doing God's work. We are living a life that is supposed to be a Christ-like copy of the life that Jesus Christ led when he was on this earth, proving that we can obey God and keep his laws by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Sitting where you are in your seat, you are the result of a long-ago act of love between your father and your mother. There are young ladies in this audience who are expecting a child. There are others who are married who are not yet expecting a child. Did any young mother, just after, not yet a mother, but a young bride, just after being married, go to her home and sit on her couch or her divan, take out a yellow pad and a pencil, and sit down and then begin to imagine and to write exactly what she feels would be the ideal little baby. I'd like it to be a girl. I'd like her to be blonde. 
I can imagine a physiognomy, the kind of cute little pert upturned nose, the blue eyes rather widely spaced, the blonde hair. I can see her when I take her to kindergarten in a little pinafore, and I can just imagine exactly what, time, what kind of a little baby she's going to be. Perfectly formed, good bone structure, a nice, beautiful complexion. We don't want to be having any ugly moles or unsightly birthmarks. And so I just think of the way this little child is going to be, and I write it all down. Now, I add to all that I'm writing here her stature and her approximate weight and then her shape, and I inculcate that into my plan for my baby. And then her color of hair and her skin and texture of skin, the color of her eyes, and I add that. Now, hold that thought for a minute. Here's a man who's been listening to the telecast for years, been taking literature and reading articles. But I'm a hard-bitten old former Baptist. I've been around a time or two. I know a little bit about the Bible. Now, this man made me mad when he talked about the Sabbath, made me absolutely furious. But I decided I'd prove him wrong. So I sat down, and I got out my books, and I went to the library, and I wrote off for that booklet, and I began to look. And in the Bible, I finally had to admit, well, he was right. You know, that Armstrong was right about that. So I added that to my repertoire of doctrine. And then now this tithing business. Now, I don't believe in tithing, but then I began to read the literature, and I studied through the Bible, and little by little, me being a hard-bitten, immovable, stiff-necked, old, recalcitrant character who's hard to convict on any point, I finally gave in and quit fighting him on that one. And, yep, Armstrong was right, and I, I guess I've got to tithe. I don't want to, but I guess I've got to, and so I'll add that to my doctrinal understanding. And then there's the Sabbath, and then the Holy Days, and then the Trinity. And little by little, I build a whole framework of doctrine. I prove it, because, boy, it tells me to prove it. I ain't going to be taken in by anybody, boy. Nobody's going to pull anything over on me. Nobody pulls the wool over in my eyes. And so finally, little by little, I build myself a doctrine. And what I'm doing is I'm building myself a Christian life, a Christian character. And here I am with all my doctrines. I believe in tithing now. He convinced me of it, and I proved it to myself. And me being the kind of person who, when truth is really, really presented to me, I'm good enough that I accept it. So, now I know all the truth. So the young lady gets up with her pad and her pencil. She goes into her husband. She says, honey, I'm pregnant. Right? Wrong. There's no way young brides dream up a baby, is there, that, that you and I know about? Without being embarrassed or clinical about it or anything else, there's only one way you and I got here. By two lives. I got here by Herbert W. Armstrong's life and Loma Dillon Armstrong's life. And Herbert Armstrong's life, with its little genetic code in a tiny microscopic spermatozoon, attached itself to a little egg that was ovulated by my mom, Loma Dillon Armstrong. And at that very instant, a little zygote called Garner Ted, except he didn't, the little zygote didn't know anything about that was on his way. My dad said, you were quite a surprise to us, Ted. Our family was complete once we had Richard David. And after our girls came along and I had prayed to God for a son, we had a son, and that was it. We didn't want any more children. You were a total surprise to us. Well, you and I began in those very lowly moments of our lives when at the very instant of the uniting of the one male spermatozoon with a female egg, a little zygote that was to become you. Now, you were only the, the size, if you have a pen in your hand, you make the tiniest little dot in a piece of paper. That's how big you were when you started. 
And yet everything that you were to be, your physiognomy and all the things that we can say, your height, stature, weight, general character of, of body and build, texture of skin, hair and color of eyes and color of skin, some of you are black, some are brown, some are Caucasian, some are blonde, some are dark-haired, and so on. It was all in that genetic code, in that tiny little microscopic beginning, wasn't it? But you had to begin as the result of an impregnation, and you had to become a zygote to become a fetus to become a baby, didn't you? And no one in this room is going to deny that. We know that's the process by which we got here. Do we have a, the faintest idea of the absolute reality of the process of the creating of a new creature in Christ Jesus inside this human physical mind of ours, this human physical life? And that without repentance, there has never been a new creature in Christ begotten. And without impregnation, there has never been a zygote which becomes a fetus, and there will not be a child. You can no more imagine power delivered to your home. If you have a new home and you go and sit in the couch and imagine, I like power for my refrigerator. No, you've got to go down and deliver a check to the power company and have them turn on the lights and throw the switch and start counting the meters it turns around. And you cannot accept a group of doctrines, a system of belief, and begrudgingly or with alacrity and happiness accept one point after another over a period of years, adding doctrine to doctrine until finally you're doctrinally fairly sound and complete. And there you are, a Christian, unless you have repented and been begotten of God. Let's go to Acts, the second chapter. The second chapter of the book of Acts. Something I mentioned briefly in passing, but I want to make very clear to you. Peter's inspired sermon was, of course, at the end of several sermons that have been given by everybody from Simon the Canaanite to Matthias to James, John, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, all of them had had their turn as they were standing there with flickering flames of fire, decorating their, their heads without their hair even singeing, and speaking in languages that were understood. There was a lot of murmur of discussion because there were at least a dozen or more languages represented. And even though each one of the apostles was speaking in his native Galilean tongue, he was heard by people from all over, Cappadocia, Bithynia, Crete, Rome. And they were hearing dialects and other languages, but they were actually hearing it spoken in a miracle of both speaking and hearing, and the one beside was hearing a different language, and they didn't understand how this could be. There was a miracle that was both of the speaking and the hearing. They had all spoken, and every one of them, one after another, had spoken from his vantage point as he experienced his life with Christ, as he may have experienced those moments of shame and fear when he ran away and slunk away in the dark of night, flitting from shadow to shadow behind the huge big olive trees and Mount of Olives, hoping the soldiers who were over there beating Jesus wouldn't catch him. Each one told his story from his point of view of how he stood afar off and saw that huge big stake raised up and jammed in the hole with a scream when the being who was, a, who was affixed or pinioned to it had big huge spikes driven through his wrists and feet. And each one testified that he is very God, that he is the Son of God, he is Jesus Christ. Peter, culminating in all of those sermons, says, beginning in verse 21, It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. 
Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God raised up, and then follows one statement after another about the resurrection. Verse 30, the last line, he would raise up Christ. Verse 31, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus has God raised up, and so on. Therefore, verse 36, he concludes, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. These were the same people who only a short while before had been out there setting up the cadence, Crucify him, crucify him. And as I said yesterday, for lying reasons, as a result of suborned witnesses, thinking they were doing God a service, were putting to death what they supposed was a criminal. Have you ever really thought of it in this way before? To whom did Almighty God send His limitless mercy? Did He send the apostles to the Fiji Islands? Did he send them to northern Dakota to preach to the Mandans? Did he send them to preach to the Incas in Peru? He sent them directly to the killers of Christ. He sent them to the Jews who had put Jesus Christ to death. The first people who had an opportunity to repent were the ones whose hands were stained with the blood of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Did you ever really think of it that way before? that God's mercy went directly to the most blood-guilty, heinous group of murderers the world has ever seen. That you and I would have said would be the last people to whom you would think God would go to shed mercy. What about poor little old ladies in some other country that would never think of even putting to death a little kitty cat, let alone throwing a hurling an epithet or actually participating in the murder of the Son of God? But God, in His limitless mercy sent His Holy Spirit and the opportunity for repentance and salvation to the killers of Christ. Now notice, they were, they were just absolutely abhorrent. Peter said in answer, they, they heard this, verse 37, and they were pricked in their heart. That's an expression that means they were just devastated. It means they were shocked. It means they caught their breath. They felt blood guilty. They, they felt uncomfortable. They felt under condemnation. They felt horrified. I remember when I was a boy, I've told this before and I won't belabor it, but we went to the old swimming hole one day with a pair of twins that I grew up with named Ron and Don Cokes, and I was just coming out of a sandy little shallow area in our old swimming hole, and they said, here, Teddy, and threw at me something, I put my hands like that, and walked right in my chest, and it was a big dead carp about that long. But the thing had been dead for a lot of days, and been lying there on the beach, ripening. It was filled with maggots. Nice, fat, juicy white ones. Those juicy white maggots were all over me. I looked down at my chest, and I said, Ah! And I plunged into the water, and I grabbed handfuls of sand, and I, you know, when I plunged in the water, I got them all off. They're floating over there. But I'm in there. I, my old skin, I had ducky bumps on top of my goosebumps. My hair was standing, you know, I mean, I was just... And I got you feeling the same way sitting there, haven't I? I couldn't stand it. Had to get those maggots off of my body. Those maggots to me represent, and always have in my life as I think back, sin. They represent rotten, filthy deeds. 
represent rotten, filthy words. They also represent many things that we should have done and didn't toward our parents and toward other people. Sin. There's an attitude that I want to express and explain as we go along that I hope all of us have experienced when we first came to realize that we had sinned. I don't know, maybe it has to do with an analogy I can draw, if you've ever been out in a canoe or a boat, of representing sin as the lake level out here on beautiful Lake Tahoe. That's sin. And you're out there in a boat, and the exact weight of yourself in the boat represents the depth to which you will sink into that lake, and you're buoyed up. But if you take a, a boat paddle, and you hold it straight down, you push it down into that water, and then you just take your hand away right quick, you notice it just pops back up, it has buoyancy, and it'll come popping right back up out of the water. It seems to me, maybe I'm wrong, that to the degree people have sunk into the depths of sin, they seem to pop out to a proportionate degree. That those who never did more than just kind of wade around in it and barely dabble in it don't seem to pop out very far. We have a gentleman who had spent a lot of years in prison, and there are several in the Feast of Tabernacles in attendance this year who have been in federal penitentiaries. There are others inside of prisons today who are in death row, who write to us and receive our tape cassettes on death row. There are people who write to us, we pray for in our Friday morning prayer breakfast, who were in prison and are going to be there for a lot of years yet. One young lady that wrote to us who had actually stabbed her own mother to death. Can God forgive her? Think about it as we go through what usually is the, the metamorphosis or the experience as the truth of God comes to us as it did to these people, and they deal with it and they act upon it, and we'll see that emotion in a moment as David experienced it, when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were saying like I did when I dived in with the maggots on my body. Ah, you know, I've got to get rid of this feeling of guilt. I've got to have something done about it. Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, the very name of the person whom you killed, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you, and it came unto those Jews who participated in the killing of Christ, and to your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Turn to the 51st Psalm right quickly. Remember when David had put a man to death, Uriah the Hittite, actually put him out in the floor of the battle to get him killed, had committed adultery with Bathsheba, a beautiful young woman he saw. Well, we know the story. How Uriah was killed, and he took her as his wife, and then a little baby was begotten of it. And how God then had Samuel come to David with the story of the little lamb. And how David was denied that child, and God took the child's life, and David was so brokenhearted. Chapter 51, verse 1. This is the prayer David prayed in his repentance after having murdered a man who was innocent, committed adultery with his wife, appropriated her for himself. Have mercy upon me, O God. Oh yeah, thinking me now, I'm the one in trouble. I'm the one covered with the maggots. I'm the one filthy and guilty. I've got to have help. I've got to get rid of this horrible conscience and the feeling of guilt. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression, because they're just like a vivid, vivid cinema scope movie right in front of me. I can't stand it. I'm seeing myself. 
acting the way I did. How could I? Wash me thoroughly, just like I dove into the creek from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It's like a blinding thing repeating itself over and over again right in front of my eyes. I can't get rid of the vision of my horrible, filthy deeds. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. God was right there looking at it. So were all the angels. He wasn't hiding from anyone. That you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, a strong cleansing agent, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Perhaps you think like I do sometimes when you're in the shower with a bar of soap. And pray to God, wash me inside as I am washing and scrubbing my body on the outside. Cleanse me with the power of your spirit internally as I cleanse my body with this soap and water. Wash me, cleanse me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. You know what we go through? We go through shame. We go through guilt. We go through self-revulsion. But then, back behind that, because basically we do love ourselves, we also go through a little bit of self-pity. And like a little child whose lower lip will just come way out and begin to quiver when their little feelings are hurt, we begin to say, God, you suppose there's something good enough down inside of here about me that maybe there's something you could save? Do I still have a chance? Is there a remote possibility, God, that you could forgive even me? We think that way. David did. Notice what he said in the next couple of verses here. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, and, uh, store, rather, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with your free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted unto you. A murderer and an adulterer in the darkness of the tunnel of sin sees a little pinprick of light at the end of the tunnel, which is redemption and forgiveness. And he says, when I'm out of this dark tunnel... Oh, God, maybe I can even do some good works, and maybe because I know the revulsion and the hideous feelings I'm now undergoing, and maybe because I know the whole process of how I gave into that temptation, all of my plotting, the way my mind worked, the way my palms got clammy wanting to get my hands on that girl, maybe now I could actually tell others, don't do that. Here's the way it gets started. Here's the thought process. Stay away from it. I might be able to convict other people and teach transgressors your ways and sinners because I've been deep in sin. I know what I'm talking about. Are you a smoker? You can help people who smoke when you get over it. And when God helps you, when you break the habit with the power of His Spirit, have you committed every sort of different kinds of a sin? Is someone in here a former druggie? Are you addicted to certain substances? You can help others who have addictions because you understand. We see examples of that in the general populace all the time. Betty Ford, the wives of famous presidents and people who have had drug habits, who have come forward and said, here's what I underwent. People who were horrible alcoholics and who, thanks be to God, were able to overcome that and put it behind them. Now what are they doing? Dedicating their lives to helping rescue alcoholics. What a wonderful thing they're doing. 
Nobody can teach them better than somebody who's been in the very depths of all of that and knows how near they came to having it take their life. People who feel they've been pretty good all their lives and their paddle didn't go very deep into that sin, didn't bound very far back out of it, can't feel the same way this man David felt. Isn't it amazing that David, the man who went out with his sword and butchered 200 Philistines, a powerful man, a powerful warrior who took hundreds of lives in his lifetime, I don't think it's pretty. Seeing a great big two-edged sword go right into somebody's throat and blood just splatter all over you, do you? And when you've done it hundreds of times, carving up people's kidneys and livers and disemboweling them with one blow, yet your Bible says, David was a man after God's own heart. David was a repenter. He repented deeply when the knowledge of his sin came to him. He said in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So we feel guilt, we feel shame, we feel self-revulsion. But then comes along the spirit of self-preservation. O God, isn't there something here worth saving? Could you yet use me? Let me ask you a question from the point of view of the parasaical, intolerant attitude of hatred toward sinning people, of intolerance toward those who are addicted, where some substance reaches out and grabs them and has hold of them, like heroin or, or nicotine or whatever it is. How can they do that? Rotten sinners, filthy sinners, I wouldn't think of associating with them. They're sinners. I see them, I'll just walk across the street and avoid even meeting them on the, on the street because they're sinners. Horrible. What about that kind of an attitude that pulls itself up to its pharisaical mucho pomposo and looks down its nose at someone else who is in the grips of sin. Do you know what God says about that? I want to turn to a scripture right now and tell you what he says about it over in Matthew, the 18th chapter. I think we're familiar with this, but I won't read it all but skim along through it because here after Jesus Christ had said that if any two of you agree on earth as touching anything, it will be bound and where two or three, verse 20 of Matthew 18, not just Peter alone, but two or three, there were checks and balances. There had to be several of the apostles there. Gather together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now Peter came and said this. He put it to him this way. Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Notice the way he put it. Interesting, isn't it? That's good old Peter. See, Peter was still unconverted. He was absolutely carnal here. He didn't say... Lord, how oft shall I sin against my brother and he forgive me? No, he said, how oft shall some dirty so-and-so low-life sin against me and I, in my great vanity and my largesse, forgive him. Don't forgive him. Jesus said, I say not unto you until seven times seven. Peter thought he'd really covered himself. He thought Jesus would say, oh, Peter, that's, that's wonderful. I'm... John, James, come here. Look what Peter has asked me. Why, you only need to forgive three, and after three, whoa, whoa, you get them in, see. But Peter has said seven. What an example, brethren. Look, Peter, come here, Peter. Peter, see, he really covered himself seven times. He couldn't believe somebody do the same thing to you. Drive over your pansy bed seven times in a row, and you still forgive him? Until seven times? Jesus said, I say unto you, not seven times but until seventy times seven. 
Therefore, he gave the parable, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a certain king. And you know the story. The servant owed him a great amount of money. Verse 24, he was actually broke and bankrupt, and his Lord commanded he be sold and everything that he had and get just a little bit. Bankruptcy proceedings were underway. The man was going to be absolutely wiped out. But the servant fell down, grabbed him by his pants legs, kissed his feet, said, Lord, have patience with me, and I'll pay you all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with his tears and his broken-hearted sobs, and he said, don't worry about it. Quarter million dollars, come easy, go easy, you know. <laughs> I forgive you, don't worry about it. I forgive you the debt, just go your way. And over the years to come, if and when you get in your feet again and you have some money, Pay me if you want to, but I just forgive you the debt. Forget it. Same servant goes out, finds a guy that owes him a hundred bucks, lays hands on him, grabs him by the throat and shakes him and says, Pay me, you four-flushing cheat. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him. Deja vu. Kisses his foot, grabs the hem of his garment and says, Pay me. I mean, have patience with me and I will pay you all. But he would not and went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So, when his fellow servant saw what was done... They were very sorry, and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all your debt because you wanted me to. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? But look at the disproportionate debt. He was forgiven an enormous debt, and he was asked to forgive just a little one. Jesus said, his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their tre trespasses. Notice verse 34 again. His Lord was wroth. Why? Did the servant still owe him anything? The answer is yes. Let me give you an example. I've got at home a leading-edge computer, and I've got another one in the office, and I do all of my work, my letters and books and articles and so on on a processor. And when I'm through with a particular file, like a first-class letter, I go Control-Wipe with a little code there for the file, and it just is erased off my screen. It's no longer on my file. It's gone. But not really, because I have a 30-megabyte hard disk, and there are computer technicians who could come and who could actually program that thing in such a way they could get that file back out of that hard disk, even though I'd obliterated it, and I myself cannot access it anymore. Now, God forgives and God forgets. Man seldom forgives and never forgets. You ever have a sense of deja vu? You're driving around a corner, you're going somewhere, you're in a building, you're with a few people, and you say, I have been here before. I lived this scene before. This happened to me before. Not really, but what happened is the little lights going off in this computer hit in such a sequence that it conjured up a thought or something that happened to you before, and you saw the similarity, and that long dead file way back there is suddenly right there on the screen, and you see it. I imagine if you put your mind to it, don't try. It's a horrible exercise. You could remember every sin you ever committed. God says he forgets them. He obliterates them. He wipes them out. They're gone. This debt was forgotten, obliterated. It was gone. But then when the man who was forgiven proved to be unforgiving, the Lord got the debt and put it back up on the screen again, and there it was. He still owed him all that money. 
and he went to jail. What does this tell you in black and white? It says, even though you have been forgiven for every sin you ever committed, should you become intolerant and fail to forgive your brother, God will take every sin you've ever committed and hurl it in your face like that dead cart, and it'll be all over you again. And it isn't gone. He will resurrect it and throw it in your face. Now, I want to ask you a question from the pharisaical attitude of some churchmen. If a person sins, conjure up the worst sin you can imagine, adultery, homosexuality, whatever you want to think of, does he get away with it? You all know the answer to that. No, of course not. It's killing him. It's a wretched, filthy situation. It's going to destroy his marriage. It may result in him contracting AIDS. There may be horrifying consequences to pay. A divorce, little children, mommy, don't leave daddy. The consequences of sin are so enormous you can't even begin to follow it to its ultimate conclusion. What do you mean, get away with it? Are there those wearing the cloak of the ministry who look at someone caught in sin with contempt? Yes. With intolerance? Yes. With hatred? Yes. That's right. What about their sins? They're lying on a bank, festering like so many fat, white little maggots. And at the appropriate time, those Pharisees walking about who have been forgiven enormous sins are going to have them thrown right all over their face. They're going to be looking at every one of them because God is going to recall them. He's going to resurrect them. He's going to throw them right in their face. Now, how are you to become a judge and to be at God's right hand judging other human beings throughout a period of time, watching their stupidity, watching their carnality, seeing their vanity, seeing them posturing through life, claiming this and that and the other thing, the irrelevant to be important, the uneducated to be erudite, the absolutely non-essential to have some special calling. People come up to me and want to tell me, well, I, you know, I, I, I thought this or that or the other thing. I actually thought Kennedy was going to get killed before he got killed. What do they want me to do? Pull out a magic wand and say, you are now a prophet. I ask people, what do you want me to do about that? What do you expect me to do about it? That's nice. Pat you on the head. You knew it. That's wonderful. So did Dean Gene Dixon. But then every time a president takes a trip, there are 1,427 mystics that say don't go. Their batting average is pretty poor. She lucked out on that one, but how many others told him don't go to someplace else, and he went and got away with it? Anyway, you hear what I'm saying. Only in the field of religion can people claim to have all this great importance and get real weird. Ever a couple of guys that came to one of my personal appearance campaigns over in, uh, where was it, Shreveport here not too long ago. They walked in with long white robes, with dirty white socks, with open-toed sandals, both of them wearing a golden woman's belt. They'd gone to some ladies' uh, shop and got a ladies' big old wide cloth belt with kind of gilt around them, and with long brown hair with a sort of a dumb look on their face, sitting there. I walked up to these two guys and I said, uh, what's the costume for? You guys looking for a bit part in a Jesus movie? <laughs> Boy, they didn't like that. They didn't like that. And they wanted a lot of time to talk to me. I said, I'm not interested. They told others around them, they're dressing that way because that's the way Jesus dressed. Oh, boy. Well, okay. 
But you know, only in the field of religion do people go through the metamorphosis I've talked about and then go several steps beyond. They experience guilt, shame, self-revulsion, a desire for self-preservation. They see the light at the end of the tunnel, and finally they're all the way out, and they're walking along in the Christian life. And they have got the baptismal pool long behind them. And gradually, little by little, they begin to develop a spirit of intolerance and contempt for other people who are in sin. God's Word says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Saul was never able to forget his past. God even renamed him. That didn't obliterate his past. Saul was a murderer. But he was a legal murderer, armed with documents from the Sanhedrin to actually, as I'd mentioned, tear people away from their beloved family and take them down to the local jail and torture them to death. And when God finally used him as a great instrument in his hands to convict and to convert who knows how many hundreds or thousands of people and to write 14 books of the Word of God of such valuable insights and information that we're able to glean today, he was continually reminded of his own sins and said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm the least of the apostles, and so on. And Paul was truly a humble man. You look at the way he dealt with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, of the gentleness and the gentle persuasion and the psychology. And yet here were people who were getting drunk on the Passover. But he's writing to them. He's appealing to them. He's talking about how he has these bowels of mercies. And he, he's talking about an empathy that made him hurt and weep and cry for these people. Do you know anywhere of ministers who, for the least provocation, will threaten to put you out? What happens when someone is put out? Well, let me tell you about my experience, may I? I was put out. For four lying reasons, because my father and I had a real personal fight. He threatened to destroy me, and I threatened to destroy him. I had no right to do that. I called up and threw into his face some of his long-buried ancient sins, and I had no right to do it. I'd stood in the pulpit and preached messages about spiritual grave robbing, and I had no right to do it. I repented of that in tears bawling before God so many hours I couldn't even relate, year after year, begging to see my dad. Can I just talk to him? I said days before he died to Rona, his housekeeper on the telephone, Rona, how long does it, say, does it take to say, I'm sorry? Let me talk to him. They wouldn't even let me talk to him. Now, my father is dead. I can't repent to my Father anymore. It says here in Psalm 51, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil which is in thy sight. I can't tell my dad, Dad, I'm awfully sorry for what I said to you in your study that day. What do I do, brethren? I don't judge them. I'm not here to judge them. But I'm saying to you and to me, except you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not be in God's kingdom. And that except you forgive as you have been forgiven, you will not be a judge and you will not be in God's kingdom. 
Shovel forgiveness with a big scoop shovel, like a big snow shovel. Give it. It's a gift you have to give. As you sit there in your chair, if there is a human being along your back trail, and there are several in mine, that did you wrong, or against whom you had a grudge, or you think they have a grudge against you, or there's money that is owed, or there's a problem of some sort. Are there people in your life along your back trail who if you suddenly rounded a door and there they were face to face with you, you'd be embarrassed, you would be awkward, you'd be nervous, you wouldn't know what to say or how to act? Or could you look at them and say, oh, it's great to see you again. While you're sitting right there in your chair, I want you to think of those people or that person, whoever it is, and you look up to heaven in your own heart, in your own mind's eye, in the light of these scriptures from God's holy word, and read, so likewise shall my Father also do unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every brother his trespasses. That gift that you have to give is not only a smile and a handshake, it's something that comes flowing from within, and it's tolerance and it's forgiveness. Christ loves sinners. He just hates their sin. Why does he hate their sin? Because of what it's doing to them not because of how it outrages him. There's a tremendous difference. What is the greatest quality of God? It says in the Word of God, God is love. And this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, for his commandments are not grievous. God is loving forgiveness. How often? Seventy times seven. Some authorities say seventy times seventy. In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6 and verse 12, Jesus says, right in the very beginning, this is, of course, the outline for the prayers. We all know, after we acknowledge God, hallowed be thy name, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as. Now that's exactly proportionate to, even as, equally so. As we forgive our debtors. Is there the faintest possibility in the back of your mind that you think there are certain things that you have not yet been forgiven for? Then forgive somebody. Forgive somebody. Cover all the bases. Make sure there's no human being on the face of this earth toward whom you are not tolerant. There are alcoholics sitting here in this room. There are people who had to have a pretty good belt this morning. It's terrible what they're doing to their livers, their hearts, cardiovascular system. I feel sad for them. There are others who could help them, perhaps. There's Alcoholics Anonymous. There are agencies out here in, in the general public. God's Holy Spirit can help them if they'll just acknowledge their difficulty and beg for that help. Do not be intolerant of them. Love them. Do not be intolerant of people who have a smoking problem. I had a smoking problem for eight years. Awful struggle to get rid of. Terrible fight to try to get rid of that smoking habit. We have people in here with stained fingernails, shirt pockets with a label inside. They're welcome. They need to be here. They need to be in God's church because they need the buttressing and the shoring up and the help and the companionship of God's people who have also suffered the same thing. There are people, as I say, among us who have been in prison. There are people who are able to give witnesses and who hide their light. There are people who are able to be teachers who do not teach. You know, I remember so well the example of people who needed to have organizations which were like front organizations, shadowy organizations that were not all that explicit 
about what they really stood for. Should we start a foundation and call ourselves the Tyler Charitable Foundation? Or should we become the Tyler Cultural Foundation and publish our magazines under the aegis of a foundation? And when people ask us certain questions, don't we only tell them maybe a third or a fourth uh, part of the answer that would be compatible and would be all right, would go down with Catholics and Protestants alike? What have we got to hide? The telephone numbers of local churches ought to be both in the white and the yellow pages. We don't have anything to hide. Our garbage shouldn't even have something in it that we hide. I remember a young man, he was then a young man, John Hill's father. He lived down there near where I do in Pasadena. I love this story. He's a, he's a guy that really had a sense of humor and still does, I'm sure. One day some of the kids on a garbage run reported someplace they'd found about six or seven beer cans in David John Hill's garbage. He probably had had some guests over that night, but you know what he did? He went around and collected all the beer cans he could find. And he filled up his garbage can with beer cans. So the next time the truck came, they couldn't, they could hardly haul all the beer cans off. How do they know he wasn't going down the alleys and gathering up the neighbor's beer cans? He says, you want something to talk about? I'll give you something to talk about. Look at all these beer cans. I like that sense of humor. That's fantastic. Because those guys had no business judging how many beer cans were in David John Hill's garbage. He wasn't ashamed of his garbage. I like that example. No, we shouldn't have anything that we wish to hide. In 1 John, the second chapter, we will turn to that. John, of course, was that disciple who loved Jesus so dearly and was so close to him, and Jesus loved him, and he was the one who was chosen to write about love. So in 1 John, the second chapter, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. Now, I want to read back up above that just a little bit, because there's a very important scripture in verse 8 of chapter 1. If we, now John is writing to Christians, and he's including himself, an apostle. If we say we have no sin, we are kidding ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We lie. We're devoid of the truth. If there's one of us in this room that says, I don't have any sin, I don't have any more problems, no more flaws, no more faults, no faulty thought processes, no resentments, no jealousies, no vanity, no ego, no greed, no selfishness. I don't have any sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. This is after the baptismal pool. This is long after baptism and receiving of God's Holy Spirit. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's faithful to forgive us our sins. Are we faithful to forgive our brethren and anybody their sins? And to realize they're only hurting themselves. To love a sinner and to decry and abhor the sin which is hurting him. You know, if I, there are young mothers in the room, as I said, and if I were to see a young mother belting back a couple of straight shots of uh, Glenfiddich scotch, if I were to see her smoking on a cigarette, if I were to see a pregnant lady sticking a needle in her arm, mainlining heroin or something, I would, I would say, oh no, look what she's doing to that unborn child and to herself. She's just 
ravaging here, just devastating a little life forming in a womb by allowing those hideous things to get into his bloodstream the next beat of her heart. Terrible. And that as young mothers should stay away from all of those harmful and toxic substances and avoid chemicals and try to eat the best, the most wholesome and natural foods and plenty of calcium, knowing the body that is being formed in there is going to get its bone from your own bone. You're going to lose your teeth and have poor bone structure and they'll begin to break and so on if you don't. And to feed that little child, so the church, likewise, Jerusalem above, the mother of us all, we are, in a sense, attached to the umbilical of that church, and we're to be fed with the true nutrients of God's Word and to grow as a full-term new creature in Christ, ready to come to the birth of the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. He is eager to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we're trying to make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Now he says, my little children, these things, that's what he had written, I write unto you, that you sin not, strive not to sin. And if any man sin, and we will, and we do, we have an advocate, the attorney for the defense, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we, if we had one man in Washington? Wouldn't all of you feel great if Senator Bob Dole was a member of the Church of God International? Boy, we'd feel good about that. we got a guy that is right there with the President's ear, who's there on the Senate, a member of God's Church, a voice in Washington. We, we take it lightly, I think, that Jesus Christ is right at the right hand of God the Father, that we have direct access to Him, and He is our go-between, our emissary, our representative, our paraclete, who is to turn to the Father and say, listen to this broken-hearted person just wallowing there like the maggots, trying to get rid of them and, and crying out to us for help. I understand, Father. Please send your oil of forgiveness and forgive this person. We, we in the church, we who have been baptized, we who are members, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins. Read the rest of it. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Yes, even Saddam Hussein, even Adolf Hitler, even Ted Bundy, serial killers, sodomites, prostitutes, druggies and drug addicts and drug pushers. He is the propitiation, not for us in exclusivity, not for us as a private special person, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died on the stake with the words on his lips, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, is the absolute epitome of the example of God tabernacling in this human flesh of giving the gift of forgiveness. How would you have felt if you had been participating in his murder? You had heard him croak those words. You'd seen that emaciated body dripping from multiple wounds. And as he died, you heard him croak out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Then you'd stood there before the temple and seen a man called Peter with a flaming crown on his head preaching and this miracle of the languages. And you knew it had to be true. And then you thought back to what he had said. 
And you, timorously trembling, approached one of those apostles and said, Do you think there would be room for me? Could I be forgiven? Would you be a person who would draw yourself up to your pharisaical height as a representative of Christ and say, No, because you participated in the murder of God's Son? Or would you be like Peter and James and John who said, Yes, you can. Come and be baptized. And there were 3,000 of them baptized in that one day. Except we forgive, we cannot be forgiven. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth has forgiven us and is up there in heaven as our high priest, busily turning to God the Father on a daily, weekly, monthly basis when we go to Him, dealing with our personal sins and shortcomings. How could any of us be intolerant? What I want us to do as a church is to say in our hearts, and if we have a chance by letters, cards, or a telephone call to say personally to our brethren in whatever other church organization, including the worldwide church, we love you. You don't have to say, I forgive you. That sounds pompous. They may have, maybe have done nothing against you, but you have that spirit of forgiveness and you let people know that you have that spirit of forgiveness, that there is no tension. Now, I know there are ministers standing in the pulpit that are calling me a minister of Satan the devil. May God forgive them because they don't know what they're saying. I really am not. I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. Praise His holy name and bless Him for all eternity who has forgiven me. The doctrines that I preach are God's doctrines. The truth that I deliver is God's truth. I'm not a minister of the devil, and this is not the devil's church, but there are other ministers who say so. Can what we say, as Christ did, Father, forgive them? They just don't know what they're doing. They're just hurting themselves in our congregations. Let's be a forgiving church, brethren. Let's deal in forgiveness with a scoop shovel. For the more you give it out, the more it comes back to you, and the more you will receive.